Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast. Episode 52! This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. On this episode, I'll be taking a look at two films from Dutch director Alex Van Warmerdam. Specifically the 2013 film Borgman and the 2021 film NR10. But before I get into that, let's do a little house cleaning here with all the other shit that I've been watching as of late. Before I get into that, actually, I'm going to consume some some drugs uh, <laughs> anyways oh yes so what has been going on lately well I first of all it is 1207 p.m. Texas time I'm about to take a drink of some 90 proof Ezra Brooks straight rye whiskey Age 24 months in new charred American oak. Very nice. Mmm, okay. Cheers to your health. Oh, that's very nice. Okay. What have I been watching lately? Well... I saw a movie last night with the wife called Ingrid Goes West. And I thought it was overall, it's a movie that um, once you're done watching it, about, if you think about it, think about the movie for about 10 seconds after you're done, after you're done watching it, you realize that the movie is a total waste of time. Because it has everything that you might like. It, it has it visually, it looks fine. All the locations were sort of, I don't know, cheap and hastily thrown together. Ingrid goes west. Yes, so this was a 2017 film, and it, it stars Aubrey Plaza, and uh, everyone knows as that dead-eyed girl. Who's Ron Swanson's assistant and Elizabeth Olsen and a bunch of other uh, white people. And then O'Shea Jackson Jr. is also in it. You'll know him as Ice Cube's son. Who's probably the most, he's probably the best character in the whole movie, really. He's the only one that was, was even remotely likable. He's like an aspiring screenwriter who's obsessed with Batman in sort of a childish, uh, immature way. Um, but the movie's like, it's, it's funny because he's a black guy who's into not just comic books, but just Batman. Isn't that funny and quirky? And then everyone else in the movie's white and annoying. And, um, (laughs) 
I mean, the story was, I mean, the story tried to have a point. It's basically about this uh, Aubrey Plaza plays Ingrid, and Ingrid is becomes, um, she's a bit of a stalker. She get, becomes obsessed with people from the internet and then begins stalking them and trying to be their friend. And uh, the beginning of the film, she is watching uh, someone at their wedding, this woman at her wedding, Posting all these pictures of the actual wedding while it's happening. Which, who the fuck does that? Who's posting to Instagram during their wedding? Not my wife. I can assure you that. And she's like outside the wedding. Not invited because she doesn't know the fucking bride. And storms into the wedding during the uh, reception. And maces the bride in the face crazy person and then she has to go to a psych ward then she gets let out and then she becomes obsessed with the with the Elizabeth Olsen character uh, from Inst- you know, Instagram that's that's her that's her jam if you're gonna become obsessed with anyone it's probably on Instagram um, let's see and Ingrid ends up moving out to Venice Beach where Hulk Hogan is from and uh, be, uh, starts basically worming her way into Elizabeth Olsen's life. And kind of the point of the movie is like, Ingrid's obsessed with people online and how perfect people's lives are online. And her life is miserable. Like her mom just died. She has like, you know, she has a bunch of inheritance money. She blows through in probably less than a month. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, she basically stalks people that she finds she finds interesting on on Instagram. So, you know, she bas- she worms her way into her life, and then they realize that she's a Instagram stalker, and then she tries to kill herself and put it on uh, like Instagram Live, like suicide attempt, and. Like most people who take pills, she doesn't die. She wakes up in a hospital bed and uh, Ice Cube's son comes in and tells her like, oh, everyone saw your suicide attempt on Instagram. And now you have like millions of followers and 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 well wishers. And then that's this makes her very happy. So basically the 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 cycle of like Ingrid didn't learn a fucking thing, basically. She goes to this. She should have learned, like, you don't stalk people on Instagram. Like, maybe you should get a life. Maybe find some sort of romantic partner. Get a hobby. Get a job. And, uh, I don't know, mature a little bit. But none of that happens. She's <laughs> None of that happens. It just ends. And she's as uh, fucked up as a person in the beginning uh, at the end, as she was in the beginning, rather. So that's Ingrid Goes West. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of enjoyable. Um, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. It seems enjoyable once it ends. And then you're, uh, then you kind of think about it. And you're like, oh, that I've, movie's kind of stupid. And I would never watch it again. But, um, yeah, the the wife made me watch that last night. And, uh, but it was good. It was a long day. I needed something to, uh, 
kind of mellow my mind out. I went to this rich person Thai restaurant on the west side of Austin where like Joe Rogan lives. Oh my God, it's terrible over there. It's so much traffic. You got to drive through fucking hills. There's just, oh my God. It's, it, and then it's filled with just stuffy rich people. And, um, I needed to come home and watch something completely stupid to kind of rinse that out of my, uh, out of my psyche. And then the other night, we saw the 2023 film Skinnamarink. And, uh, you may have seen ads for it. You may have watched a trailer for it. And the trailer is like, I don't know. It, it it seems like it's not it's trying to not give anything away because it's like a scary movie and it was it, it's made to look like it was shot on a very shitty, you know, camcorder from the 90s. Um but really it gives <laughs> it gives everything away in the trailer even though it seems like it's giving nothing away. Because the movie was about nothing. Nothing happens. Paranormal activity is like a faster paced movie than this. So, but let me let me read to you a review, a description of Skinnamarink. A hundred minutes. It was a hundred minutes long. It felt like it was 300 minutes long. All right, Skinnamarink. A shocking lo-fi descent into the most primal of childhood fears. Which is what? What is... The most primal of childhood fears. Mm. Mm. Skinnamarink is a slow, nightmarish walk through a vivid sensation of nostalgia, reminding adults what it felt like to be afraid of the dark, even in the comfort of owns, one's own home. That is a quote from some rando... Writer-director Kyle Edward Ball knows fear, and his stunning debut film is a masterclass in pure white-knuckle terror. Skinnamarink follows two boys who awake to find their father missing and all the windows and doors of their home gone. They watch cartoons to fill the silence, but it becomes clear that there is no growing up on the way to save them. And there might actually be something watching them in the dark. From this simple premise, Ball weaves a dreamlike narrative that taps into deep-seated childhood fears long thought left behind. It's the creeping dread of shivering in your bed late at night watching the shadow in the corner and knowing in your bones that it's alive and it's hungry. This is top-tier nerve-shredding horror that left us squirming in our seats and hoping that mom and dad would come and turn on the lights. Uh, who fucking wrote this? Does it say who actually wrote that description? Doesn't. Cowards. Okay. Uh, yeah, Skin Marink was none of those things. 
Okay, this Kyle Edward Ball guy. Um, his debut film is a masterclass. It's like, no, it's not. It's absolutely not. This is amateurish uh, uh, garbage. It's so boring, and everything has this, like, fuzzy film grain filter that's throughout the whole movie. And... It's like this shot on video grainy effect. And I was so bored that I was watching. I started watching the grain effect and I realized at some point it was going to loop because it just, it doesn't, it's not actual interference or static or anything like that. It's just a filter. And at some point it'll start over from the beginning. So I I started, I started looking like just right of the center of the screen. And I noticed a little, little, little phony imperfection that's supposed to be like like on a like on a on a film on a film reel or something and then i would wait for a while and then i'd see it again i'm like oh so i was more paying attention to the filter on the on the film than the actual film um yeah this is not top tier nerve shredding horror not at all it's boring it's very boring and I want my money back, Alamo Draft House. Um, yeah, it's it's basically I've seen better made movies on YouTube of sort of uh, ARG analog horror type of stuff. That's way more interesting. Like the back rooms. I think everyone's seen the back rooms. It's based on that. Fucking liminal space photo of like an empty building and somebody made the back rooms, which is like a weird alternate reality sort of horror thing on YouTube. Or uh, there was it. There's Ghost Watch, which was actually it was it was basically a pre Blair Witch Project shot on horror or shot on film rather uh, or video shot on video kind of a documentary but it's like fake it's like a it's like it's not a real documentary but it looks like a documentary and it's basically uh you know oh no our house is haunted and possessed and it was sort of presented to the public in the uk that it's it's real footage like that's more interesting than skin a marink also if you listen to the show you know that i'm i'm not into Oh no, my house is haunted movies. Like, I don't give a shit about haunted stuff. Especially if it involves children. Like, little children don't scare me. Okay, I don't care if they're a ghost or real. Okay. Um, well, of course, there's there's a more sort of like weird original type things like uh, Local 58 TV. That's on YouTube. And that one's a little more, I don't know. It's got this dystopian type of uh, edge to it. But I I think local TV, local 58 TV, that's on YouTube. That's way more interesting than Skinamarink. Okay. So if you're listening to this, I'm assuming that you already saw Skinamarink and you want your money back, but your local movie theater won't give it to you. So I'm giving you recommendations of things to watch instead. Uh, uh, so you kind of feel like you got your money back. 
or your money's worth. And if you haven't watched Skin and Rink, I'm actually saving you money and offering things that are you can watch for free that are better. Not that any of these are amazing or anything, but it's more interesting than Skin and Rink. What else is there? The Mandela catalog. Mandela catalog is, you know, if you watch that alone in the dark. That might send uh, shivers up your spine, maybe. I don't know. Um, just entertainment-wise, you, do you remember uh, the Price Master? That was a thing that was uh, being kicked around social media at one point. One of those dumb videos that people just kind of latch onto because it's kind of funny. It's kind of like a, it's like the modern day equivalent of the G.I. Joe PSAs that would be on E-Bombs World. Remember those? Yeah, uh, that's basically the Price Master, which is very funny. It's hilarious. Way more entertaining than Skinamarink. Okay, don't watch Skinamarink. It's garbage for garbage people. What else did I watch recently? Um... I watched my Blu-ray copy of uh, Jeremy Solner's uh, Blue Ruin. Very good movie, Blue Ruin. Uh, Same director as Green Room, if you haven't seen Green Room. If you want to see Patrick Stewart play the leader of a white nationalist gang in the woods of the Pacific Northwest, holding a punk rock band hostage, then go watch Green Room. I liked Green Room very much. Um, <clears throat> but yes, uh, but Jeremy Solner directed Blue Ruin before Green Room. Very good movie. Done on the fucking cheap. Like Skin of Marink was probably done on the cheap. But I think Blue Ruin is probably a better example of how to properly utilize money you know get people who can act get actors with lines to say since the visuals are just going to be awful but blue ruins great it looks great it's a very interesting story it's about this guy who is homeless he's a he's a kind of a younger homeless guy uh, younger meaning like he's like he's probably in his late 20s early 30s and he is uh, the guy who murdered his parents are getting out of prison that day so he goes to the prison to see the guy come out of come out right and then basically the movie is this dude has been waiting to kill this guy who killed his mom and dad for the guy wasn't even it didn't even seem like the guy was in prison that long he was in there like a few years for double murder but we don't know exactly what happened with the murder you know like bits and pieces trickle out throughout the movie but they don't have a flashback or something dumb like that um all you know is this guy is going to kill the guy who killed his parents okay so we're already on his side and then it it kind of becomes this uh you know, Hatfield and McCoy type of situation where these two families, um, like he goes and murders the guy 
like right off the bat. They got that out of the way early. They he kills the guy who killed his parents, and then that guy's family, instead of calling the police and reporting that you know this guy who who they know who he is killed his brother, they don't go to the police. They decide they're going to take matters into their own hands and go after him and his family, and you know. Movie's nasty, you know. There's a lot of murder, a lot of revenge, a lot of, lot of, you know. That's sort of like blinding. Like when you're past the point of anger and hate, it's just like when people are just like, just have absolutely no hesitation on on killing somebody. Revenge is like this. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's like revenge. Angry revenge is kind of that's that's for like dumb action movies, and this isn't an action movie at all. It's just, it's like this isn't angry revenge. This is like calm, cold, calculated, uh, dirty revenge. You know, great drama. You know, very good shooting locations. I, and actually, the on the Blue Ruin Blu-ray in the extras, the making of. Will have you in tears. It's <laughs> everything they had to go through to make this movie, and it became super successful, and it was you know nominated for a bunch of shit at uh, Cannes Film Festival, and everyone loved it. And there's this whole thing about the director; his dad was on his deathbed, you know, um, right when the movie came out, and um, the director told his dad. Um, that he made a movie and that it's a huge success. And so the dad died knowing that his son made a movie and it was a huge success and very well liked. But the guy told his dad this before that actually happened. So he basically lied to his dad about this movie because he wanted his dad to die happy. And then something like two months later or something, Blue Ruin actually became a success. So, yeah, the, even even the making of Blue Rune is really good. So, again, that's why I stress, if you can buy, if you have the means to buy physical media, uh, do it, okay? Streaming's great and everything, but I really believe that owning some physical media is really an important thing. And also, and also don't watch TV. Like, me and Sean... On the Con Men podcast, we always joke that I say the same thing there. I'm always like, uh, oh, don't watch TV, no matter how alluring it is. TV is, it will just make you stupid, uh, except Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is the only ex- uh, exception. I always joke about that. But, you know, as, 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 Absolutely fantastic Tucker Carlson show is. Um, I would have to throw him into the into the wood chipper with everything else on TV. Don't don't watch TV. <laughs> Just own physical media. That's all that really matters. Okay, you don't want to pay money to pay some streaming service to just watch the same movies you know you're going to watch every year, and then watch maybe a handful of original shit. And then maybe even a smaller handful of shit that you don't even fucking remember watching. 
You know, it's like find stuff that's good and then buy the physical copy. You know, that's basically what I do. Like, yeah, I have a bunch of streaming services and shit. But that, but I'm not on there constantly. I'll find something that I like and then I'm like, okay, I'm going to physically own that. Because I value rewatchability. I don't value consumption, you know. It's like, it's like, why? It's like, it's like watching all the Star Wars properties on Disney Plus because you saw the original trilogy of Star Wars. Like you somehow owe it to yourself or you owe it to the Star Wars franchise to watch all their shit. It's like, why? Doesn't make sense. You know, it's, but when something is worth it and absolutely worth Owning a physical copy of, I, I just strongly recommend doing it. Like, I own a copy of the uh, Harmies uh, Star Wars trilogy, which uh, I'm not going to say I paid for it because I think it would be, I think it's actually illegal to own a Harmies Star Wars edition. Um, I own it on Blu ray, and um, it's the original Star Wars theatrical versions which aren't shown on Disney or any of that shit but I own that because it's worth owning you know I'm not gonna fucking buy all the other shit or watch the animated shit ew or read the fucking books no absolutely not just own shit that's good that's my point own shit that's good that has rewatchability because it'll fill you with that joy you'll rewatch it and feel the joy mm-hmm. or you'll you'll grow to hate it and then you'll look back on it and feel embarrassed that you used to like it which is good you should feel embarrassed about things but you should also when you rewatch something you're like wow this is not as good as i remember that's a compliment to yourself that means you've actually gained some taste okay Okay, your 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 tastes have expanded, and that's good. That's very good. That means over time, when you buy more physical media, it's it has better quality. You know what you know what to look for better. Not just buying things to buy them. Okay, you're buying things that matter. So buy Blue Ruin is what I'm saying. <laughs> that's what all that was about. Uh, and Green Room, fuck it, that's a good movie too. It's incredibly violent. Uh, both movies are violent. Um, but uh, Green Room is just just a manic pace of just <laughs> fucking brutal violence. But one more movie. One more. Um, a buddy of mine who I cut his hair in his beard because um, I'm a barber. That's what I do as the day job. He, we sit around and talk about uh, movies all the time. Every time he comes in, he's like one of the he's one of the people who like picks movies for South by Southwest's film festival, which I haven't been to, but he's somehow involved with that. So we talk about movies all the time, and his like between shit I know about movies and the shit that he knows about movies, it's a really good. He's a guy who would actually be a really good co-host. Actually, this guy Frank. But I don't think he would, I don't think, I think he would grow tired of me. I don't think he'd be able to sit here and talk to me for like episode after episode over and over again. Um, 
but he, but I really like Frank's opinion on films, even when we disagree. Um, but he told me to watch this film called Red Rock West. It's a film from the '90s, and uh, directed by uh, John Dahl, who's like John Dahl has. Uh, He's probably you've probably seen something that John Dahl has done, has directed, because he's mostly known for doing television and he's done everything. He's done like fucking I know he did Breaking Bad and but he's done everything. He's been on. He's directed really good shows and stuff like that. But he's kind of like in and out, like he'll dip in, knock out a couple episodes and then bounce and move on to another project. But he did this movie called Red Rock West in the 90s and it stars Nicholas Cage and Dennis Hopper and what is oh my god and Laura Flynn Boyle and it's a really simple story but it's got like fun twists and turns and people who are into like Nicholas Cage like having freak out scenes like he's got a few of those in here if you're into that this is before uh, Nicholas Cage got his teeth fixed by the way so his bottom teeth are these sort of creepy they're like little tombstones or something they're weird and his teeth are the same color as, as his gums it's very off-putting but uh red rock west let's see uh nicholas cage is like this honest hard-working guy in texas who's trying to get a job on a oil rig he's trying to get into some kind of uh, oil drilling company in texas the whole movie takes place in texas and He's not able to get the job because he has some sort of like pre-existing knee injury. It's weird. It's kind of like Keanu Reeves' knee injury and Point Break. Except that actually comes up later um, <laughs> in Point Break. I mean, they, he has some sort of knee injury. And uh, we find out that it was from, uh, he, he got it in combat. So he was, I believe, in the Marine Corps. And he... Um, I think he took shrapnel and it fucked his knee up or, or something like that. And actually, actually, no, they did give <laughs> John Dahl actually did do a good job of like putting in all that random shit and make, uh, making it make sense. But um, he couldn't get his oil rig job because they're like, you got a wonky knee, you can't work here. So he goes to this bar. Um, he's kind of dejected and shit, and he he goes to this bar. I think he just orders coffee, right? Because you don't want to have some drunken fucking hero in the West. You need a nice sober uh, hero. So he comes in, and who's behind the uh, the bar? But J.T. Walsh. Everyone knows J.T. Walsh. If you saw his face, you'd be like, "Hey, I've seen that guy in every '90s movie ever." And um, I love that guy. He's a guy that you you have to just give give him two or three pages of <laughs> of dialogue, and um, he's really intense and he's just really good at playing like a sort of corp like older corporate evil guy or like like he works for the government in some sort of uh, intelligence capacity and. Um, he's good. He's really good at like he was an outbreak. He has a really good scene in Outbreak where um, 
He pulls out a pocket copy of the United States Constitution. And the whole point of the scene in, in, in that is the in Outbreak, there's this little town that gets this weird virus, this monkey virus. And they're like, maybe we should just blow up the whole fucking town because the military developed some kind of like anti. It's like a non-nuclear bomb, but it's big enough to blow up this town completely and kill the virus that lives within it because they can't let anybody out. The entire town's in quarantine. And J.T. Walsh has this great scene where he pulls out the Constitution. And he like th- dramatically throws it on the table, and there's like a big boardroom meeting with all these people there. And he's like, this is the United States Constitution. I read it cover to cover. It doesn't say a fucking thing about blowing up a town full of people, but it does say you can't deprive people of life, liberty, through due process of law, this whole fucking thing. And it's a great fucking scene. And uh, it's... Yeah, J.T. Walsh, you know who the fuck he is. Anyway, J.T. Walsh owns this fucking bar, and um, Nicolas Cage comes in, and then the uh, J.T. Walsh notices that uh, Nicolas Cage's car has, like, a Texas license plate, and, and he comes in, and he goes, uh, are you here for the job? And Nicolas Cage is like, he's not, but as we just saw, he needs a job. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm here for the job. And the guy's like, good. He's like, come with me. And he goes and takes him into his office and gives him uh, $5,000. And he's like, okay, here's your $5,000. Uh, so I need you to go kill my wife. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage is like, uh, okay. So he like gives Nicolas Cage a gun and five grand. And the whole thing is he's supposed to go kill J.T. Walsh's wife, Laura from Boyle. And he's, uh, Nicholas Cage needs to make it look like it was an accident. Or, or not an accident, but uh, like someone broke into the house and killed her while J.T. Walsh was off at work. And uh, he ends up not doing it because Nicholas Cage is a good guy. He's not going to just kill some innocent woman. And, oh God, what was it? Basically, it's basically they... The actual guy that was supposed to be the hitman from Texas, uh, um, that was the whole thing. They're, they think uh, Nicholas Cage is this guy named Lyle from Dallas, and he's not, okay? So later on, the real Lyle from Dallas shows up, and it's played by Dennis Hopper. Like, 90s Dennis Hopper, fucking excellent I covered his movie uh, uh, Out of the Blue on a few episodes ago, but fucking Dennis Hopper in the 90s is fucking amazing. So he's he's Lyle from Dallas, and he's supposed to be the hitman. He's supposed to kill Lara from Boyle. And J.T. Walsh, it takes a little time, but he figures out that Nicolas Cage is not Lyle. And then him and Dennis Hopper team up to go hunt down Nicolas Cage and Laura Flynn Boyle, who are basically going to try to run off together after they have some vaginal sex in a hotel room. Um, but Laura Flynn Boyle's like, oh, you know what? Um, <laughs> we should escape off to Mexico. And Nicolas Cage is like, sure, let's escape out to Mexico. And she's like, um, she explains to Nicolas Cage, like, oh, my husband's trying to kill me because I inherited a bunch of money. And he wants to kill me for it. And But the, but the money is in my husband's floor safe 
at his office. So they have to like sneak back to wherever the fuck and get into the dude in JT Walsh's office to get the money so they could escape. And then you find out later that Laura Flynn Boyle was lying to Nicolas Cage about the money and then tries to double cross Nicolas Cage and there's shootouts and cemeteries and Dwight Yoakam makes a fucking appearance in the film and then the movie ends and the credits roll and it's I'm a thousand miles from nowhere. Remember that song? That, that, that song's in the end credits, but really fucking good. And uh, thanks, Frank, for Red Rock West. Go check that out. If That's probably a Nicolas Cage movie that you missed in the 90s, you know? But, uh, and Laura Flynn Boyle, for all you Twin Peaks fans, um... I think she was also in the movie Threesome, where she has a threesome. Is there more of a 90s concept than let's have a threesome? But let's jump into Borgman from 2013, directed by Alex Van Warmerdam. Um, Borgman was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival of that year. But it lost. It was nominated, but it lost to a movie called Blue is the Warmest Color. Ooh. Um, Blue is the Warmest Color is a French movie about uh, lesbian statutory rape, basically. It's based off of a uh, graphic novel. Okay. It's... And it's directed by this, like, alleged sexual assaultist guy and mistreater of cast and crew, a guy named um, Adilatif Cheche. I believe that's how it's pronounced. That's how it looks like. It's Cheche. Adilatif Cheche. So right here on Skeleton Factory, I'm pleased to announce that Borgman was, in fact, the real winner of the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2013. Congratulations, Borgman. If you disagree with me, if you disagree with that, then that means you support sexual assault of women and the mistreatment of the fine people at the French Audiovisual Cinemagraphic Union. Okay? Uh, There's a... uh, Blue is the Warmest Color was a graphic novel by a lady named Julie Morrow. And I want to read. Here is. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Okay. And it's talking about blue is the warmest color. So. Miss Morrow was herself at the center of the controversy when she released comments on the sex scenes described, describing them as, quote, a brutal and surgical display of so-called lesbian sex, which turned into porn and made me feel very ill at ease. Especially when in the middle of the movie theater, everyone was giggling. Among the only people we didn't hear giggling were the potential guys too busy feasting their eyes on the 
on an incarnation of their fantasies on screen. End of quote. Still, Morrow, despite not being received on the set nor acknowledged by Cheche in his acceptance speech, defends the film describing it as, quote, another version slash vision of the same story, end of quote, end quote, what he was, what he has developed is coherent, justified, and fluid. It's a masterstroke, end quote. And Morrow writes in her blog, quote, just don't go and see it, hoping to feel what passed through you while reading blue. She's referencing blue, the warmest color. You hear that? Do you hear the disdain in her voice? So the whole thing was <laughs> the uh, Abdilatif Cheche. Uh, there were, so the two main characters in the movie are these two ladies who uh, I get. I don't know if they're actually lesbians or not, but they play lesbians in the movie, and they have this very, very graphic sex scene, and. The two actresses are <laughs> they're they basically uh, s- sought legal action against the director, and so did a bunch of people who worked on the movie. So um, I'm sure some lengthy non disparagement contracts were signed. Because I know she wants to just bash this movie so bad, but I think she can't bash it too hard because she probably signed something that said that you won't bash like your your coming of age lesbian sex graphic novel. You know, now that it's going to be put through the lens of a uh, uh, some sort of uh, sexual predator and put on screen, like you can't talk shit about it. Otherwise, we'll fucking sue you. We will sue you, Miss Morrow. Also, on top of everything else, uh, Adelitif Cheche ended up auctioning his Palm Dur trophy four years later. Okay? So, not only is the creator of the source material hate the movie, um... And not only did he abuse the people in the film, but he ended up just auctioning off his precious Palm d'Or trophy for money. And apparently he's auctioning all sorts of things. He's like really hard up for money right now. So, um, and you would think this guy would just retire in shame, but that, that he's still making movies. So congratulations, Borman, the winner of the 2013 can film festivals palm door congratulations so um there's i've heard a lot of kind of uh, similarities drawn to movies like parasite and the films of uh yorgos lanthimos like if you've seen dog tooth and um i'm, I'm a big uh, yorgos lanthimos fan uh, fan he makes very beautiful odd movies kind of like what we're going to be watching uh talking about today rather like he did um, The Lobster with Colin Farrell. And Colin Farrell was also in another Yorgos Lanthimos film, uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. 
very good film. So there's people draw kind of similarities in their sort of directing styles. And I say that's accurate. So kind of keep that in mind. Um, the world we are entering is at times surreal and has more questions than answers. Okay. But in a, in a good way. So let's jump into the world of Borgman. So we open with a priest and some other armed fellas with a German shepherd are hunting down three men in suits who are burrowed in the earth of the forest floor in sort of their own individual hidden dwellings. Okay. And they end up escaping, but they split up and we follow one of these suited gentlemen who live in um, underground primitive bunkers type. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's like if he fell into a punji uh, stick pit uh, and there was like a dude living there. That's basically what they look like. So they escape, but we follow just one of the guys. Okay. We catch up with the other guys later, but really the movie's about the one guy and that is the titular Borman Borgman. That is played by uh, Jean Bijovet. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but that's how I, I pronounce him. And he looks like, if, if you uh, are familiar with the singer Gaul from the black metal band Gorgoroth. Everyone knows Gaul from Gorgoroth. That's who Borgman looks like. He looks like that. So, uh, Borgman escapes out of the woods and he comes across this beautiful modern home in, um, it's in the Netherlands. Okay. This is like a Dutch film. So, and it's a beautiful home surrounded by woods. And in this home is a, it lives a family, husband and wife, uh, Richard and Marina and their three children, uh, buddy, Jack Roberts, Terry Bam Bam Gordy and Michael P.S. Hayes. That's their three children's names. That's not true, though. It's actually the names of uh, 80s tag team wrestler, uh, wrestling tag team. The fabulous Freebirds. And, um, but I don't remember what Richard and Marina's three children's names were. It doesn't really matter. All you know is that there's like two girls and a boy they're probably under the age of 12, and um, they're very blonde and white. That's all you need to know. But So Borgman goes and knocks on their door one day, and Richard answers the door, and Borgman asks if he can take a bath inside the house. And Richard says no, which makes sense, because if a homeless guy comes and knocks on your door, you're probably not going to let him in and let let him take a bath inside of your bathtub. Okay, I don't care how pure your heart is. You're probably not going to let something like that happen. So <laughs> he's like, hey, can I come take a bath in your house? And uh, Richard's like, no. And, you know, if you were Richard, you would also say no. This This is like a fucking... Like a $4 million house. 
in the middle of the uh, countryside somewhere in the Netherlands, and it's, you know, you're not going to let some homeless guy come in and take a bath in there, especially since you have children and, you know, your wife's in there. It's like, no, that's not a thing. So uh, Borgman, I'm calling him Borgman, but in the beginning part, you don't know his name is Borgman until later in the movie, but I'm just going to call him Borgman because the movie's called Borgman. Um, Borgman introduces himself as Anton. He gives he basically gives a fake name to Richard, and Richard's pretty he's kind of a good sport. Uh, during during this, he's like, "No, you can't come to my house and take a bath." And he shuts the door, and Borgman through the door is like, "Hey, but I know your wife." He re- opens the door. He's like, "How do you know my wife?" And then he starts to tell the story of like, "Oh, I was." Horribly injured in uh, some hospital, and your and your wife was my nurse that uh, that cared for me for weeks or months or whatever it was, and brought me back to health. And Marina comes up, and and Richard's like, "Were you a fucking uh, nurse uh, who took care of this homeless guy?" And she's like, "What the fuck? I'm not a nurse. <laughs> I'm a stay at home mother." Okay, because my husband is rich. He's Richard, and he's rich. Okay, that's... It's like, no, I don't know this fucking homeless guy. And then fucking (laughs) Richard stomps outside, punches Borgman, and proceeds to just mollywop the shit out of Borgman. That's what happens. Kind of an extreme reaction, but... uh, I wouldn't want a fucking crazy guy standing on my porch in a rural area talking all fucking crazy either. So, but yeah, Borgman lies about knowing Maria and, uh, you know, Richard's ass beating of Borgman is sort of, that's our inciting incident. Okay. That's where the movie really starts kicking into gear. So instead of being turned on and grateful and, oh, thank you, husband, for defending me and our children and the tranquility of our home. Marina, Marina doesn't say that. Instead, Marina fucks everything up with her lady empathy. Uh, okay, so she one day she discovers Borgman. It's the same day, actually. She discovers Borgman hiding in their garage. And if you found a bleeding homeless man that you saw your husband beat the shit out of in your garage hiding, what would you do? Think about that for two seconds. Mm -hmm. There is only one correct answer. You would call the police. Lock yourself in your house with a gun until the police arrived. But Marina ends up hiding Borgman in this little guest house shed thing in their backyard. And she's, like, bringing him out food. She's feeding him, mending his wounds. And then eventually, when Richard's not around, sneaks him into the house and draws him a bath and makes him, like, soup and wine. Disgusting. Okay, that's grounds for instant divorce. Okay. So, So, Borgman... Is being hidden away by Marina in this fucking guest house. And he's there for like days. Okay. So 
Borgman devises a plan. And I'm speeding things up. I'm speeding things along, okay? <laughs> so I don't want you to think all these things happen in perfect back-to-back sequence, okay? There's other shit happens, okay? But you have to watch the movie to see what else happens, okay? This is how I think of spoilers, okay? If you're new to the show, you know that... Um, well, if you're new to the show, you won't know. But you won't know. Uh, but I'm telling you that I don't believe in the idea of spoilers. Like when someone says spoilers, I don't believe in that, the concept of that. I don't Because I, I, I might do a whole episode on this, on spoilers. When I grew up, there were no spoilers. Okay, that wasn't a thing. You rather just didn't mention a movie to somebody. Or people just told you exactly what happened in a movie. Okay. Spoiling the end and everything. But if the movie was good, it didn't it doesn't fucking matter. Because someone giving you a general description of a film. There shouldn't be enough to put the idea in your head that, like, oh no, the the movie's totally ruined for me now. I don't have anything to be surprised at. It's like, yes, you do. You, the movie itself, the actual visuals, the music, the acting, okay? The, the nuance of the film. It's the nuance, okay? Like, there's funny stuff in this movie. This movie's very kind of dramatic and dark, but there are genuine funny moments that sort of break up, sort of break up kind of tense moments here and there. Not a lot. Not on a Guardians of the Galaxy level, but just just enough to kind of smooth out the edges here and there. Like, if you tell somebody a movie from beginning to end in a general way, like I'm doing on this show, the magic of the film is everything else in the film, okay? And a lot of people can't accept that, but that's what it is. And if you don't believe me, and I use this example all the time... Here's an example. Let's say you're talking to somebody about movies and they really hype up and suggest a movie that they liked to you. Most of the time, these people don't really have a bead on what type of movies you're, you're really into or directors or actors or anything like that. They just guess what you're into. And they're like, oh, I saw this thing. It was fucking amazing. It was the greatest fucking movie I've ever seen ever fucking amazing i love it it's the best it has a very high rotten tomato score you know drivel that people say when they're trying to get you to watch a movie and then you watch the movie and then you are like this movie is a piece of shit so now you now you now have a fr- you have a fresh lump of resentment living inside your chest for that person that recommended this movie to you. Okay, so they see it and it's amazing. You see it and it's awful. Now, what do you do with that information? Do you go to the person and tell them like, remember that movie you recommended? It's terrible. I don't want you recommending movies to me ever again. Your taste is awful. I don't like your taste in music or movies rather. Probably not music either. I don't, your tastes are bad. I don't want to hear any more suggestions for movies from you ever again. Okay? People won't usually say that to somebody. 
But if someone just tells you what happens in the movie, you might be like, that sounds dumb. I don't want to watch that. And then you just don't. So I'm trying to like meet everyone in the middle. Okay. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you spoilers. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to give you spoilers, but I'm going to give you spoilers. And if what you hear generally sounds like something you're interested in, then go watch it. And then when you go watch it, you'll see all the all the other things, all the glue that holds everything together, all the good stuff. You'll get to see that. Because that's better than someone being like, you got to see it. I can't tell you anything. Just see it. Because that's just like... That's like holding a fucking, a, like a a dog's, like a treat for a dog. And going, you want this boy? You want it? Oh, go, go, go. Oh, you want it? Oh, oh, oh. And the dog gets all excited. Like, yes, I want it. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh. And then you throw the bone really far. And the dog's got to go after it. Okay, that's how I feel when people are like, I don't want to give you any spoilers. I don't want to ruin it for you. Like, just ruin it for me. Because if I see it and it's bad, I'm going to tell you that it's bad. But if it's good, I'll say, hey, thanks for the recommendation. That was really good. I like that. Anyhow. <laughs> but yes, uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. Uh, Borgman's in the, uh, in the garage. And then uh, Marina brings him in and. Is nursing him back to health behind Richard's back when he's not when he's off at work, earning a living, so that she can have this elaborate home. Okay. So, Borgman devises a plan to kill Richard and Marina's gardener. Okay, they have this older, well, very well dressed gentleman who wears clothes that you wouldn't think anybody would garden in. You know, like like light khaki pants. And like a light button-down shirt. That doesn't seem like something that somebody would garden in. But their gardener does. Because they have this beautiful yard. And it's got just trees and plants and flowers. It's very pretty, right? Uh, Borgman's like, okay, I'm going to kill the gardener. And then take the gardener's job. So Borgman assembles his uh, team of other well, well-dressed weirdos. Like the people who were in the um, in the forest with him. And in the beginning of the movie. And then there's a couple new faces. There's there's like a couple ladies there as well. And they're all they're, they're all dressed like they all work in an office. A very professional uh, button-down office. But it's like casual Friday. Okay, that's how everyone's dressed. It's like an L.O. Bean catalog or something. So he, he assembles his team. And their names are Shina, uh, Triple H... Shawn Michaels, the road dog Jesse James, and badass Billy Gunn, also known as the New Age Outlaws, also known as Degeneration X. Yes, that's not actually their names. Those are the names of professional wrestlers from the 90s, early 2000s. Why? Because I don't feel like Borgman's gang, like any of their names fucking matter. Okay, there's five of them. Okay, there's two ladies and three guys. All right. And they're his like little forest dwelling fucking gang. Okay, so he's like, we, we, some time passes 
all of Borgman's wounds heal. Okay. And then he gets a shave and a haircut. Very handsome. And Borgman and his team um, successfully poison the gardener. <laughs> and his sickly, probably dying wife. So they set up the gardener a little bit. He's got like a sick wife at home. Um, so they poison the gardener and then they take him home and then poison his wife. And they take the couple... Okay, they're in the they're they throw them both on the bed. They're both dead, and they take the couple and they dunk their deceased heads into flower pots. So imagine if somebody like if you laid your your head off the edge of your bed, and then someone put a flower pot over your head and filled the pots with cement. And so so now their heads are encased in cement inside of a flower pot, okay? And but their bodies are still attached, right? So after they do that, they throw them in a lake, which is a very cool scene, okay? They throw these people who have a flower pot cement heads off a dock and then they fall to the bottom of this lake. And the underwater shot of them floating head down and then sort of landing on the bottom, the floor of the lake with their feet kind of like hanging <laughs> like straight up and down. Okay, they look like they're seaweed underneath the water. It's a very, very cool scene. So Borgman, uh, he brings in his crew to do all this. And then uh, what he, Borgman ends up, because now he's all cleaned up and stuff, and he does an interview at the uh, at the house, and they hire him. They Richard completely forgets that he's the homeless guy that he beat up some time ago. So Borgman brings in his crew to do all this, like, complex gardening work. Okay, so Borgman gets the job as the gardener, and then he brings in his crew. Now... The, the team of forest-dwelling murderers now have their claws in this family, okay? Borgman is now their gardener, and he has his whole fucking team working with him on the property. Okay, so now Marina still knows that he's Borgman. And when he actually gets the job, that's when he tell, he says, like, oh, my name is, my name is Borgman. That's what he tells Richard and Marina. And I guess that's what his name is actually supposed to be in the movie. So, so yeah, now, now the team is, the team is sleeping in the guest house where Borgman was in the yard. Right. And Borgman has graduated to a guest room in the house with the family. Okay. So Marina starts having these nightmares. Okay. Starts having these nightmares, and it's the every nightmare is, is, is about like Richard just molly whopping the shit out of her. And it's these, it's basically the same nightmares kind of happen where like Richard is very abusive towards her. And these dreams seem to be created by Borgman. Every nightmare she has, Borgman is sitting on her. In what the weightlifting community refers to an ass to grass squat. 
So he's sitting. Okay, picture this. The image of a weird naked dude sitting on a sleeping woman on her chest. Um, that image appears multiple times in this film. Okay, every time she has a nightmare, um, she's asleep and Borgman's sitting on her chest and he's naked. Gross. Have a homeless guy's butthole sitting on your nightgown. Ooh. All over your all over your nice sheets that you buy, bought from Mike Lindell. Gross. And this this movie kind of keeps you thinking. There's enough there's enough kind of uh, space in between the scenes for you to kind of think about what's going on and put the pieces together and fill in the blanks. And um, one thing that I put in my head, I was like, I was thinking about that the 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 image of Borgman sitting on like squatting down and sitting on uh, Marina's chest. I'm like, where do I know that image from? Cause it happens a couple of times in the movie. And I'm just like, but that reminds me of something and I can figure out what it reminded me of. And then I realized what it reminded me of. There is a 1986 movie called Gothic and the poster for that film. Like I remember this seeing this at the video store, the box for Gothic is that same image. And it's basically what's called a mirror. And it's, it's like fucking folklore mythology from Europe. Okay. A mare on the front cover of Gothic is sitting on the chest of a sleeping woman. And a mare is like a, um, like an entity that can sit on you and bring you nightmares as, as well as death. Um, depending on the folklore, okay? And Borgman and his cohorts are mares. They don't explain this in the movie. I had to fucking figure this shit out. What they are is mares. They represent, like, creatures that have the power to basically do Jedi mind tricks. They, they're shapeshifters. They can fuck with your dreams. They're sort of like like a, like a classic like incubus type with the ability to sort of bewitch people and possess them and turn people against their loved ones. Things like this play out with Marina, their nanny and even their children. Okay. So they kind of use their uh, little magical powers, their little mind control games to, you know, basically uh, seduce all the women and children in the house. And, and then, um, so, you know, bodies start to pile up at the bottom of the lake, <laughs> more people's heads and flower pots sort of thing. And, um, and then, you know what, you can, you can figure out what happens after that. I <laughs> go watch Borgman. Okay. Very weird, spooky movie. Very sort of a surreal world that, um, Alexander Van Warmerdam uh, creates for us. I definitely recommend it very much. So it's uh, copious amounts of beautiful non sequiturs. It's very mysterious. Uh, if you open up any issue of like architectural digest, that's what the entire movie looks like. Everything is very stylish and nice to look at. You know, it's not like, you know, it doesn't seem 
fake. Like the world seems very real and tangible and it doesn't look like a fucking pigsty like Ingrid Goes West. And um, yeah, Architectural Digest. Just Google image that and p- click on any picture. That's what this movie looks like. It's very visually lovely. Unlike, uh, it's a, I'm, I don't know, some kind of ugly garbage movies for dum-dums. Like Wakanda Forever or Avatar 2. Okay, those aren't, people say those are just visually amazing, and it's, no. Those movies are casino carpet, okay? It's just a visual, colorful mess, okay? It's not visually lovely, like Borgman, okay? There's a difference. There's some class, it's classy type of movie. Avatar 2 is for people with a very low testosterone, by the way. I'm looking at you, James Cameron. So is Wakanda Forever. Um, you know what? Here's something fun. You know, this movie, uh, Borgman, made in 2013. 2013, um, a lot of uh, famous people died. Okay, 2013 was the year that uh, James Gandolfini died. It was the year that Karen Black died. We love Karen Black on Skeleton Factory. Okay, she was in It's Alive, the Larry Cohen film, which I have an episode where I cover It's Alive. We love Karen Black. Uh, Dennis Farina died in 2013. Okay, he was he was uh, cousin Avi from Snatch, and <laughs> he's the original Jack Crawford and Manhunter. Everyone loves Dennis Farina. Uh, George Jones. He died in 2013. Uh, I know there's a movie with Michael Shannon. I think it's called George and Tammy. And it's uh, about George Jones and Tammy Wynette. That's what I love about Michael Shannon. He always plays real life people who he looks nothing like. Michael Shannon looks nothing like George Jones. He played Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman, in the film Iceman. He looks nothing like Richard Kuklinski. James Gandolfini looks like Richard Kuklinski, okay? Michael Shannon looks like, I don't know. He looks like an alien. He looks like he'd be an alien in, like, Men in Black or something. That's what he looks like. He he, he looks very, um, he looks like a CGI character. Who else? The lovely uh, Haji died in 2013. If you're into like Russ Meyer movies, you'll know Haji, very exotic, pretty lady. Uh, Ray Harryhausen, he died in 2013. Uh, Tom Laughlin died in 2013. Fucking Billy Jack, he died in 2013. And so did movie reviewer Roger Ebert. Okay. That's when the Roger Ebert era ended and the Skeleton Factory era began. Okay. And now to our last film, NR10 from 2021, directed once again by Alexander Van Warmerdam. Uh, the film is broken up into some kind of capricious-like chunks, okay? There's... 
there's a variety of kind of different chunks of the movie that don't seem like they're connected together. But they are. (laughs) If that makes any sense at all. So, but none of these chunks, okay, that make up this one movie, none of them really have a clear conclusion. But it's it's fun to fill in the blanks without feeling like you're missing out on too much, okay? It doesn't feel like the movie's leaving you like, what? What happened? I don't understand what happened. It's more of like, oh, they deliberately didn't explain certain things, so I can kind of just fill in the blanks myself because it's fine. It's fun to just speculate about the worlds of movies, isn't it? So much fun. Also, there's some sudden genre changes thrown in there to sort of misdirect you. And I like that. And like, for instance, um, not even, not even so much misdirect you in this movie. There's probably a little bit of, they're trying to switch genres here and there to kind of misdirect you, but in a good way. But, um, if you look at something like bone tomahawk or something, something that's like, seems like it's a, kind of a straightforward Western type film for most of the movie. And then all of a sudden, boom, it turns into like a fucking exploitation cannibal film out of nowhere. Love bone Tomahawk. If you haven't seen bone Tomahawk, see that if you want to, if you like Westerns, if you like cannibal shit, if (laughs) if you like, you know, if you like kind of movies that are a little bit fucked up, it's good, but there's also a high degree of quality, very good writing in Bone Tomahawk. And it looks really good, too. So, yeah, the kind of the misdirection in NR10 is more of it's more of a delightful sleight of hand. OK, so let's jump into NR10. So NR10 follows the story of Gunter, played by Tom Duesperly which is how I pronounce his name. And Gunter is a stage actor who is engaging in a extramarital affair with the director of the play that he's the lead of. Oh boy, drama. So much drama right off the bat. We don't hate him, okay? That's they, The movie kind of presents it where he's still a very likable character even though he's, you know, fucking around with some dude's wife who bothered to cast and pay him to be in this uh, play, you know. Uh, The movie convinces us to actually hate the director husband (laughs) and his devious cheating wife, which is one of those things in this movie that I think is, uh, I don't think people pick up on, like people who are critical of this movie. Little things like that just go right over their heads. They can't. They're too dumb to understand that you're pulling for a guy most of the movie who is actually not a very good person. (laughs) And that, that takes good writing to, you know, manipulate an audience in that way. Uh, There's lots of uh, bone dry humor in this that really tickled me. I really like really well-done, dry humor. Just like Borgman. Uh, I would say more, things funnier things in this movie are probably a little more funny 
And then in Borgman, it's more of like, like nervous laughter, maybe. I don't know. There's a scene where, and it's in the trailer, where uh, Gunter is, he's snitched out uh, for the affair by one of his fellow actors, this like nice old man. And the old guy tells the director, like, I think your wife is having an affair with Gunter. <laughs> and on the opening night of this play, Gunter pops out from underneath the stage and hammers the old guy's foot to the stage with a nail in front of like the whole audience. And it's very funny. <laughs> it's very funny. And after this, Gunter basically goes into hiding. Like he leaves town after burning all of his professional bridges. And um, at some point he's approached by this group of sort of mysterious Catholic priests and these men who are like these well-dressed men in overcoats who just sort of appear from the darkness, you know, like like the cigarette-smoking man from X-Files, like guys who have that kind of air about them. And these guys appear here and there and they appear and they tell Gunter that they know the whereabouts of his biological mother. Gunter is an orphan, you see. He was found abandoned somewhere as a little baby somewhere in Germany. And he never knew his his mama or his papa. Okay, he didn't have parents. So he um he was adopted and he so basically he has no biological family besides his adult daughter named Lizzie and we don't know what happened to Gunter's wife that he you know fucking he didn't give birth to Lizzie okay i'm sure Lizzie had a mom at some point we don't know what happened to the mom maybe she's dead maybe they got a divorce from um you know, maybe that was it. Maybe she divorced Gunter because he's his moral compass is dog shit. Um, he fucks other guys' wives. You know, maybe that's what happened. I don't know. It's not mentioned, but I like that it's not mentioned. So the movie shakes off the whole the director and the play and the affair and all. all, all none of that matters at a certain point. It just dead stops. We sort of abandon that whole story. And Gunter is then approached by a man who works for this group of priests and is given the location of this tiny black church. And not like it's painted black. Okay. It's not a black church like like Baptist or Pentecostal or Jehovah's Witnesses, not black people, but it's a little black church with a steeple and it's in a rural wooded location. Okay. And God, what wasn't Prince and Michael Jackson both Jehovah's Witnesses? Is that true? I feel like that's true. Oh no. Prince was a Jehovah's Witness, and Michael Jackson, I think, was Mormon or something like that. I don't know. Anyways, 
<laughs> so he goes to this little church out in the middle of nowhere, and he's met at the door by some like priest dude, and he's led into this like secret passageway under the floor of the church that takes Gunter to a long and deep as fuck cement staircase that leads way down into this like subterranean bunker and it's very clean ultra modern very architectural digest um like something out of uh you ever see uh anybody do any of those like fast renderings of the uh unreal engine 5 do you know what that is this was just introduced to me recently Unreal Engine 5 is basically if you're like an architect or an engineer and you you make houses or office buildings or something like that. You can, kind of like The Sims, you can quickly design a, a house that you can actually navigate through the 3D space of it. And it looks per, very real. Like you can, if you kind of stop and look at certain things, like if you walk by a fireplace and there's fire burning, the fire looks fucking pixelated and fake and shit but everything else looks pretty good so you can basically build a house from nothing you ba- it basically looks like a i don't know something on autocad or it basically you can basically sketch out a house in this program and then you know make the wall cement or wood or you know make you basically you build a house in every possible little detail, and then you can actually walk through the fucking house and then put plants and shit in there, and it looks great. That's what <laughs> that's what the subterranean bunker looks like. It's it looks like something out of that. And so Gunter's met by uh, the priest, and once he gets inside this big old beautiful bunker. And this guy named uh, Polzig. And Polzig is, he's sort of a civilian, okay? He's like the, he's sort of like the group, the leader of the group, okay? It's like a co-op of like well-dressed middle-aged European men and the Catholic Church, okay? So there's like these sort of like plain clothes dudes. And then there's like the priest guys. And he's, they bring Gunter into this like blue primordial ice cave like from the beginning of the x-files movie okay it looks like a very expensive sushi restaurant inside or something it's they bring him in this room and they sit gunter down and explain to him that he is from another planet okay he is from another planet his mother is from another planet And the huge bunker that they're all sitting talking in right now is a spaceship. Okay. So they're like, you're from this planet. And, uh, the, the, the priests and Polzig and his band of, uh, murderers are, uh, are like, they're, they're, they're aliens. Okay. I mean, some of them, May not be aliens, but it's not entirely clear who is an alien and who's not. Besides, maybe the the heads, like um, like I, th- I'm pretty sure Gunter, not Gunter, uh, 
like the head priest guy, he's an alien. Uh, Paul Zig is an alien, and some of the other guys are aliens. But I think they might actually have like random priest dudes who were sort of like, like brought into the fold of this Catholic alien uh, conspiracy. So they tell Gunter, "You're from another planet. Your mother, who you've never met, is also an alien." And Gunter's like. <laughs> This, this is, this. I'm going to need a little more proof, fellas. This is like, it's a lot of unbelievable information. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, right? So uh, they show Gunter a video of his mom. His mom playing with the baby him. Gunter is a baby. It's him and his mom. And she's aware of this program that the aliens decided to do okay that what they were going to do is they were going to take 12 babies from his planet bring them to earth and they sort of just dropped them off in the wilderness of germany and see what how they would assimilate to earth and if they were able to uh, breed with humans like what would happen with that and the the aliens themselves they look like humans so you know, Gunter was able to assimilate very easily. And um, so him and his daughter, well, his daughter's half alien, right? So in the video, his mom's like, I, you know, if you're seeing this, that means you're still alive, you're grown up, and we're coming to you now to tell you where you're really from and that you need to come home. So... Gunter goes and tells Lizzie and she's like really stoked about it. You know, she, you would think she would be like, I think my dad's crazy, but no, she's like, Oh my God, you're an alien. That means I'm half alien. We should. And they want you to go back home. She's like, well, you know, I want to go with you. And Gunter's like, really? (laughs) Maybe you should go into hiding or something. She's like, fuck that. Like, when am I ever going to meet my real grandma when am I ever going to go to an alien world? When am I ever going to be on a fucking spaceship? Like, I you, I have to go with you. So, he, he goes and tells Lizzie this, and then they return back to the fucking underground spaceship bunker thing and they with, with luggage. And the priests and some of their, like, little fuckboy first-year sort of priests come with them. And... Um, I'm assuming for sexual purposes, right? There's no women on board. So besides Lizzie now, but there's no women on board. So I think the priest brought these younger, uh, priest guys with him so they can, uh, they can have sex with something while they're traveling through space. That's my guess. I don't know. So they, they all, you know, they all load onto the ship. They put away their luggage and the, the heads um, go and show Lizzie and Gunter around the ship. Okay. So um, the heads are, there's like a, there's like a few of them. There's like the main guy who looks like, uh, like David Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And then there's like, there's a priest who's black and um, his name is Innocence. And he's sort of the guy who he's kind of the first guy who tells um, 
he's sort of the first guy who approaches Gunter and tells him that we have information about, like, we may know where your mother is, but we can't tell you too much. You know, um, there's levels to this game is basically what he's trying to tell him. And, um, yeah, so those are, those are kind of the head guys. And then there's Polzig. He's like the head civilian guy. And then he has like a couple of kind of hitman minion guys that surround him. So they go and show them around the ship and they take them into this like big warehouse. And it's filled with, um, like all this sort of like these religious artifacts, this sort of Catholic, like bric-a-brac, you know, but it, you know what it looks like? It looks like if you went to Home Depot and all they sold was stuff that you put inside of a Catholic church. That's what the, the, the warehouse looks like. Then they begin to have this conversation where Gunter's like, well, why do you have all these religious things? And the head priest guy is like, there is no religion on our planet. And since we've been here, uh, like Gunter was dropped off as a baby in 1975. Okay. So they've had, you know, about 50 years to kind of study Catholicism. And they're like, Ooh, this whole religious thing is very interesting that the earth people have. We should bring this to our planet. And Gunter is like, um, he's like an, an atheist. Okay, so they begin to have this, you know, he, everyone was really stoked to go to the, <laughs> the home planet and be on a spaceship. And then they're like, oh, yeah, we're also bringing religion. And Gunter's like, why? Why would you bring that? Like, if your planet's so great, why would you even need religion? And they get kind of into a little spat. And then uh, him and, the, like, the head priest. And then pulls it, kind of butts in and goes, all right, gentlemen, like, you know, that's... This is this is a ridiculous argument, you know. We're, we have bigger fish to fry. Okay, this is supposed to be a happy day, sort of thing. The two guys are like, okay, yeah, whatever. And because to Gunter, it's not you know, it's about going to see his mother and his home planet. You know, it's like everything else is sort of secondary. So uh, again, it's this big religious warehouse. Um. They're, they're, the priests are in there and they're sort of like looking through some of the more uh, highly prized artifacts in there. Um, and, it's you know, there's a lot of like sort of like shit that they probably stole from the Vatican, like statues and shit like that in there. And one of them is um, an original painting by the painter uh, Caravaggio. And if you've seen some of his paintings, you'd like recognize them. You know, they're very sort of renaissance they're very dark um they usually contain some sort of scene of horror <laughs> and they open up this crate and inside of it is uh incredulity of saint thomas the ecclesiastical version and it's basically these like renaissance people who are talking to jesus and he has jesus has his rib wound right on his side and they're sitting there poking at the fucking hole on his rib that's what the painting is and one of the little young priests are like is this the original and then like the head priest guy is kind of like yeah fuck yeah it is and the guy's like wow like he, did, he doesn't really ask like how did you get this it's more of like he knows that they stole it <laughs> so um 
So they're, they're okay. So they're lowering, like us on a crane. There's like a big crate, another crate that they're gonna, you know, bring down, open up, and see what's inside. And like, uh, it doesn't lower all the way. And they're trying to reach for it, and they're like, "What the fuck?" And they turn and look at the guy who's operating the crane. He's like in a little separate room in the corner, and they're they're kind of looking at him like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Like, lower the crate so we can look in it. And uh, it's the crane guy and um, and uh, Poltzig is in there. And he just, like, looks at him for, like, two seconds and smiles. And then he, like, hits a button and the airlock sucks all these guys and all this religious stuff out of the airlock into the vacuum of space. And they all die. Uh, where was Gunter and Lizzie during all this? Good question. They weren't there. They were actually in their rooms, like sleeping when this whole little scene takes place and they get sucked out into space. So basically when they, there's not much special effects in the movie. It's not until the spaceship actually takes off or it comes out of the ground. Like that's sort of like our, Big, wide, huge shots where you just just almost drone-ish looking shots of the spaceship coming out of the ground and flying away. And it looks like a big turd flying into space. And when they get sucked out of the airlock, that's another big kind of special effects thing. So you see all these like dead priests and all these statues of angels and shit just sort of like floating through the void of space. And then you're left to ask yourself, well, what does this mean now? Was this whole using the Catholic Church just some kind of some kind of ruse that Poltzig like he needed them to get a hold of Gunter and and Lizzie or you know just to turn on them or like what what does this mean now? Okay, it's it's not it's it's a it's a little confusing. But the movie kind of just lets you fill in the blank. You know? Because, oh, ooh, I didn't even mention this, but uh, the we find out Lizzie is, um, she's like wandering around the ship by herself one day, and she comes across this room, and when she goes inside, it's like a set. It's like a little movie set. And the movie set is of the scene in the video that... They showed Gunter of where him and his mom were playing. So that video of his mom was was fake. It wasn't even real. They made that to make him believe that, you know, to convince him to go on the spaceship with them. So now we, but now we don't know Polzig's true meaning. You know, was there even twelve other children that were dropped off on Earth? Like, is Gunter somehow? Some type of royalty, or is he some type of, you know, bounty to be captured? Like, we don't know. We don't know, and the movie doesn't explain it, but I don't care that it doesn't explain it. Okay? it's Everything else in it was so good that I don't need to have it explained to me like every other uh, uh, dumb sci-fi property out there. Okay? The End. <laughs> and that was NR10, directed by the great Alexander 
Van Warmerdam. And he has done a whole bunch of movies, and I've only seen these two. But I am convinced that the two of them are somehow connected. So I need to watch some of his other movies to see if they're also little connections. You know, kind of like Tarantino has little things in his movies that connect them all to each other. Because, you know, if we go back to Borgman, the first scene was uh, a priest and some uh, hunters hunting down Borgman and his buddies through the through the forest. Okay, they, they formed this hunting party. Like, why was a priest going after these creatures? So, and, and our 10, the, the little secret church is in the woods and the UFO is underground. Like, do these two movies exist in the same universe, in the same world? Maybe. Because if you're going to have, you know, nightmare, you know, creatures, <laughs> like supernatural uh, creatures who look like people, and you're going to have aliens from outer space who look like people. And they're also in the woods. Like, why can't they exist in the same world, you know, of, of the same director? Don't know. I haven't, I haven't watched any of his other movies. But these two I really like. So I definitely recommend NR10. Go check it out. And a lot of the people in, um, well, the actors in NR10 are also in Borgman. Okay? He uses a he a lot of the same actors like Borgman is in NR 10, but he, I don't even think he has any lines. He plays like a, just a stage hand who's just at the theater at all times. He, okay. And, uh, Gunter is in Borgman. He's like one of Borgman's, he's part of his little crew. So I do like, I do like that. I do like when directors kind of bring back people they find to be their kind of muse or, a group of actors that all just work really get well together. I like that um, very much. So yes, go see NR10, go see Borgman. It's pretty easy to find. Use your television. You can find it. I would recommend buying physical copies of these too. Okay. Because Borgman is like, I don't know. It's more of like a modern fantasy film. With some horror elements. And NR10 is sort of like a psychological drama, a thriller, but then it has a sci-fi aspect to it. And I would go as far as to say um, it's the best sci-fi property of 2021. Okay? You know, I would say that... Uh, you know, even though this was made in 2021, I'd say it's better than Avatar 2. It's visually more interesting than Avatar 2. We don't need to see alien monster creatures or alien worlds or any of that shit in NR10. We're just told about it. We, our brain just fills in the landscape. Um, some people will uh, say that um, these films are boring. <laughs> But um, I don't think they're boring. I think they're a slow burn, and there's a difference between that and boring. Skinnamarink is fucking boring. I fell asleep three times in the theater watching Skinnamarink, okay? I ordered... What did I order? I ordered a old-fashioned, 
And then the movie was boring. So I ordered chicken fingers that I split with the wife. Still bored, so I ordered fries. And then uh, I think uh, I, I fell asleep twice. And then I woke up and then I ordered a milkshake. And then I drank the milkshake and then I went back to sleep. And then I woke up for, you know, the last 10 minutes of Skinamarink. It was awful. Okay? All the sodium and sugar in the world couldn't keep me awake in that fucking theater. But in terms of uh, sci-fi of 2021, and that was the year of uh, Tatane, which everyone fucking shit their pants about. Everyone thinks that that movie is like the greatest, most edgiest fucking movie ever, and it's not. It's dumb. A woman fucks a car and then becomes... Or gives birth to a car. Okay? And not in a good way. <laughs> like in a bad way. It's not... It's way... Okay? NR-10 is way better than Titane. It's way better than Matrix Revolutions. Or Resurrections. Or whatever the fuck the 2021 Matrix movie. Matrix 4. Let's call it Matrix F- Part 4. Okay? That movie was dumb. It was big, it was loud, and it was dumb and not interesting. And NR10 was probably made for a tenth of the budget, and it's way more interesting and satisfying. Uh, 2021 is when Dune came out. I think NR10 is infinitely more mentally stimulating than Dune. Okay. For all you Dune fans out there, you can't can't take the can't take the truth. Okay, uh, what was it? The Netflix had that one movie, a uh, Stowaway. Okay, this is NR10 is way better than Stowaway. See, while all this shit was coming out, fucking these you know delightful Alex Van Vormerdam. Movies just, just, just pass right by a, like a shadow. It's just, you know, but I do recommend both these films. I think uh, people should see them. They're very good. Well, that is the end of episode 52, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Now, if you would like to uh, recommend a film to me to possibly do on the show. I'm currently taking recommendations. There's no guarantee I'll pick your film, but sometimes I do like a couple episodes ago when I did the greasy strangler, that was a recommendation from uh, a gentleman on Instagram. And uh, what other recommendations have I done? Well, I mentioned red rock West in this episode. That was a recommendation. Um, I did, um, several, quite a few episodes again, I did an entire episode that was just listener recommendations. I did, uh, what was it? Killer Sofa? <laughs> what was it? I did the Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie and then something else I don't remember. But 
But yes, you can uh, get a hold of me at skeleton underscore factory on Instagram. I am also on Twitter at SF podcast ATX. And please show us some love and support the show at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash skeleton factory. There's more episodes over there. Okay. Well, I'll catch you guys on the next one. This is the Skeleton Factory Podcast, rescuing your movie night one movie at a time. I am Adam. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>